Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So here's the context, all right? Here's what's going on. Jesus has risen from the grave, and this is happening on the evening of his resurrection. So the passage just before this, Jesus has come and met with his disciples. They were meeting in a locked room, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears in their midst, and they are overjoyed that their Savior has been resurrected from the grave. But Thomas isn't there. We don't know why. We don't know what's going on. I have no idea what was happening in his internal world that may have caused him to miss this, but he wasn't there. And so whenever Thomas arrives late to this meeting, what happens is the disciples, in their overenjoyment, are ecstatic about sharing what has happened. Jesus was just here, Thomas. You, you just miss it. He is alive. We have seen the resurrected Lord. And we see Thomas's reply as a famous response because it's what has ultimately earned him his nickname, Doubting Thomas, right? What he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Doubting Thomas. What? I actually believe Doubting Thomas gets a little bit harsher of a rap than what he really deserves. Because if you look at the disciples in their reception of a witness of people seeing the resurrected Jesus, they really weren't all that different than Thomas. And you can look at Mark 16, it spells it out really clearly for you. It says this, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus resurrected from the grave, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. So that's one account, but it's not just one. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. This is the road to Emmaus, where two of Jesus' disciples are walking. Jesus shows up has a meal with them. Their eyes are open, and they believe, and they see that this is the resurrected Lord. And what do they do? They, they return and report it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. The three different accounts that Jesus has shown up and appeared to the disciples, followers that he had had, they come, they go to the disciples, they bear witness of this resurrected Jesus that they've seen, they've touched, they've ate with, and they don't believe. No different than Thomas. Thomas, I would say, is more of a representative of humanity here in this text than he is the doubting Thomas that he's commonly made out to be. You and I are like the disciples. You and I are like Thomas. We struggle, we wrestle with doubt, questions, and insecurities. This happens before belief in Jesus, and this happens after belief in Jesus. A lot of the struggles that we have before belief have to do with things like the miracles of the Bible, or of how God created the world, and how all these things, the science and the questions that we have, how do they all fit together? We have struggles with the hypocrisy that has happened throughout church history. So when we show up to a new church, we have this list of things that the church has to meet in order for us to even maybe consider believing in this God once again. We, after 
belief in Jesus. Whenever death or disease hits, we struggle with doubt, disbelief. Common things are said like, how could God do such a thing to a person like this? They were good. We have struggle, we have hardship, we have difficulties. We do it with even the smallest of things. We do. So my son, whenever he was, the first year and a half of his life, he struggled to sleep past 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm not saying, wake up at 3, we have to go get him and then put him back down. No, he was up at 3. And I felt like a walking zombie. And I remember there were moments when I was sitting in the rocking chair and I was just saying, God, if you love me, if you love me, you will put this child back to sleep. I doubted God's love for me because I was so tired. So tired. It doesn't take much for us to move towards doubt and disbelief. But here's a good thing for us. Jesus is patient with Thomas in this passage. And I believe it's not just a one thing that happens. I believe it's the constant. It's the repetition. It's the theme of Jesus with us as his followers. That because Jesus is patient with Thomas, and we're going to see this, I want to help highlight this, his patience, in three different ways through this text. First, Jesus' patience is slow. It's slow to anger. Second, Jesus' patience is understanding. And then third, Jesus' patience is gentle. So let's look at how Jesus' patience is slow first. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So pay attention to those first three words. A week later. Now, whenever I was first reading this passage to speak, my initial thought was, it's kind of cold, Jesus. You show up to other disciples throughout the week. The day that you're resurrected from the grave, you come, physical appearance. Thomas shows up. He has these doubts. He has these questions. What's going on? Why such a long time? Uh, I don't think Jesus is making Thomas like, work through these things on his own. I don't think he's punishing Thomas. I don't think he's getting back at Thomas. I think, think he's expressing his patience. Jesus' patience is slow. If it's you and me, we are rushing in quickly after Thomas's list of things that he needs to see happen before he believes that Jesus has really resurrected from the grave, right? I mean, Jesus has just died for Thomas's sins. He was hanging on a cross. He's resurrected from the grave. That Thomas spent three years with him. I, he had to, uh, if it's you and me, we're, we're saying, Thomas, I, I told you, man, I was going to go die, and then three days later, I was going to be resurrected from the grave. I told you this multiple times. You were with me for three years, so you saw me heal people, from diseases that seemed unhealable. You saw me feed the multitudes where I basically took a couple loaves of bread and some fish and I made uh, a meal for thousands upon thousands of people. I brought people back to life myself. How can you not even believe that I could do this on my own? But that's not what we see out of Jesus because Jesus' patience is slow. If you look throughout the Old Testament, if there's one common descriptor of God, the Old Testament, it's this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is said over and over again in multiple books throughout the Old Testament. 
Because God's patience is slow. He's slow to anger. He's different than you and me. Jesus' patience is what allowed him to endure the cross, the cruelty, the viciousness, the injustice of the cross, so that he could save us from our sins. And it's Jesus' patience, God's ultimate supreme patience, that Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because he wants as many people as possible to believe in his resurrection and to turn from their sins. We see 2 Peter say that very thing. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus is patient with Thomas, and ultimately, he's patient with you and me, because that's his nature. He's slow to anger. He's patient. Is understanding. With me back at 26 and 27. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So notice Jesus' instructions to Thomas Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Touch my side. Jesus doesn't seem put off by the demands that Thomas has put forth. He's understanding. He's understanding of these things. There's a, a painting by, I'm going to butcher his name, Caravaggio, I think is how you say it. All right, so he's a painter back in the late 1500s, early 1600s, and he painted this picture called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. So, all right, before I jump into that, I'm no art expert. All right, I am art done. All right, so in humanities in college, my wife and I took it together. She loved it. I hated it. She did really well in it. I'm the only re the only reason I passed that class is because of chairs. All right, I I do not necessarily get art, but there's one thing that I want you to see in this, and that's the highlight. That's kind of around Jesus taking Thomas's finger and putting it into his side. There's a Christian author that highlights this this way. What I love about the painting is how Jesus is perceived. I find him compassionate, seeking to assure Thomas that he has indeed been raised from the dead. The Lord is depicted as taking Thomas's hand and placing it in his side. Jesus is not put off by Thomas's weariness. He welcomes the opportunity to lead Thomas deeper into faith. So, I'm not saying that every single time that we bring a list God or Jesus in this life that he's going to work it out in a perfect way for us like he did to Thomas. But what I am saying is that I believe this passage teaches us that Jesus is understanding of our doubts and our insecurities and our questions. If a common thought in your head is God must be tired of me and my questions, I would say no. Instead, I would say that Jesus wants to take your hand and lead you through your doubts, your insecurities, and your questions, work them out. There's a, a missionary's wife that her husband was martyred on the mission field, Elizabeth Elliot, and she was quoted as saying that during difficult, faith-crushing times, Christians move from denial to doubt to devotion. 
So what happens when we bring our doubts and we bring our questions to Jesus is he takes our hand and he moves us from denial and he moves us from doubt and he moves us into devotion with him, fellowship with him. That's the beauty about who our Jesus is. He understands all that you've gone through. He's a God that came to put on flesh, walk this life that you and I have walked. He knows what we go through. He's experienced what we have experienced, and he can take our hand, and he can lead us through our doubts, our questions, and insecurities. He understands it. Jesus is understanding and his patience towards Thomas. He's going to be patient in his understanding with your doubts, your insecurities, and your questions. So Jesus' patience is slow. Jesus' patience is understanding. Jesus' patience is gentle. Look with me at the end of 26, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. So consider the last sentence of Jesus' statement to Thomas here. Stop doubting believe. What we have to realize is Jesus' patience does not exclude correction in our life. As we walk through life with Jesus, he is going to bring correction into our life. The difference about Jesus' correction is that it's gentle in its tone and in its heart. We often experience life and inject that into the scriptures. I know that I do this, and this is one of those passages that I commonly did it, so before this last week, um, I would struggle whenever I would read passages like stop doubting and believe, or I would read the instructions that Thomas laid out when Jesus comes. I read it in some, in some form or fashion as if Jesus was coming in to prove himself and then getting on to him to stop doubting and believing. But I think whenever you really look at this, you can tell the gentleness of Jesus by the way that people respond to the, cor- the correction that he So how does Thomas respond to Jesus' correction of stop doubting and believe? He says, my Lord and my God. You don't reply to correction that way if it's coming from a harsh authoritarian. But you do reply to correction in that way if it's coming from a gentle and patient Savior. Jesus is gentle and he is patient in the way that he deals with our doubt This is, I would say, not just like a one-time event with Thomas, and you don't have to believe it's going to be a one-time event with you either, because you see it over and over with Jesus throughout the New Testament. So a couple of instances. So first, the woman at the well. What happens at the woman at the well? She comes to the well, and it's in the midday. It's a odd time for her to be coming to get water. And Jesus basically describes her whole life before her. You've had five husbands, and the woman, the man that you're now with is not your husband either. And what, what is her reply? What is her response? Is she turned off by Jesus? Is she done with Jesus? No. Like, she goes into the city and brings the whole city out to see Jesus. Jesus isn't this harsh authoritarian that's pounding the table, bringing hard correction to our life. No, he's gentle in his nature and his tone in the way that he brings correction to our life. 
The second one, the woman that couldn't stop her bleeding. Years upon years, said upwards of 20 to 30 years, that she struggled with this bleeding disorder that she had. Jesus walking through a city. The crowds are so, so captivated by Jesus that they, they crowd the streets. He can't walk through without being touched. But all of a sudden, this lady sees her one opportunity and believes, I just touch him. Maybe, just maybe, I will be healed. So she does it. She touches him. She's healed of her bleeding instantly. And what does Jesus do? The question is, who touched me? Who touched me? I felt my power leave me. His disciples are like, Man, there are so many people here. How in the world are we supposed to figure out who touched you and who? Jesus said, no, I know my power left me. And those crowds, they knew this woman, 20 to 30 years of suffering in this way. They, they were going to see that she was healed. And knowing that, she comes frightened, drops to her knees. The Bible says that she's literally shaking. And she says, I'm the one that did it. I'm the one that touched you. I just had to. And you were my only one. And how does Jesus respond to it? He says this, daughter, your faith has healed you. In peace. Jesus is patient and gentle with us in our doubts, our insecurities, our struggles. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time offer that you get to play the card once and then the rest of your life he's coming down hard on you. No. That's the theme of Jesus' relationship. model of patience that Jesus has led for us. We are the shadow. His patience is slow. His patience is understanding. His patience is gentle. So how do we mature in this? How do we mature in our patience? I think there's a couple of ways that we're a little timid to step into. The first one is this. I think when we hear the word patience, we automatically go to our faults our faults. So if you follow our Instagram account or you follow like our Twitter account or any social media account, we posted a video of patients that we developed for this Fruit of the Spirit series. And what, what that video is doing is basically asking people to give their first impression when they hear a word to give, this is what I think first off the hand whenever I hear patients. And if you watch that video, it's constantly, the first thing I think of is I don't have enough of it. Or I need more of it with my kids. Or I have to have that every single day because I can't survive. And oftentimes it feels like it doesn't come. Those are, those are the testimonies in the video over and over and over. I, I think we are flooded with this low-grade guilt when we hear patients because we automatically go to our flaws. It's happened to me this last week. All right, so... One of the things that causes the most frustration in my life is trying to do small little like chores or things around the house. Things that are supposed to take just no time at all, but end up turning into this huge ordeal because things just go wrong. And they always go wrong for me because I'm not very handy, all right? So if you ask me to come try to install a floating shelf in your house, just keep it to yourself, all right? So <laughs> what I was doing, I, there's something I need to do with our door. There, I needed to fix the door before I came in work, and so there's a place that I had to chisel out for the door doorknob to get it to fit in right, and I'm hammering and chiseling, and I go through the whole door, I bust through the, the other side of the door, 
And I'm, I'm so angry. I'm so angry that I did this. It was just supposed to be a simple little thing that I do, and it, just, it goes so wrong. And so what do I do? I do two whole cans on our kitchen counter. I mean, just laugh right on top of the kitchen counter. Cherish and Sutton are standing over there. She picks up Sutton and just walks out of the room. So I go to work that day, and here, here's what I'm supposed to do for work. I'm supposed to write a sermon on patience. <laughs> Guilt just creeps in, man. I, that's not like a one-time occurrence for me. I, I mean, I struggle in those moments with patience. So I'm just thinking, like, how am I supposed to sit down and write a, a sermon on patience with a good conscience? But the Lord was kind and he sent a very good gift to me through a other pastor called Eugene Peterson. He wrote a book called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he, one of the chapters in that book is on patience. And he, I can't put it up here, it's too long of a, I basically have to put the whole chapter on there. But here's, here's the summation of what he says. Patience for us is not perfection. Perseverance. There's a stick to itiveness when it comes to the Christian life and patience. Because you and I are going to fail, we're going to fail often when it comes to patience. You're going to fail later today, you're going to fail tomorrow, you're going to fail next week, months and years down the road. But the goal for us is not perfection when it comes to patience, it's perseverance. And what that means is this, all right? God is ultimately the one that is going to produce patience in your life. He's going to bring the fruit of patience about in your life. Your role is to keep trying and to work at it. Not to be perfect at it, not to try to stir it out on your own. No, you are to keep trying, keep working at it. So when your patience is going mad with your kids, you're not supposed to get it perfect. But you are. You're supposed to work. You need to be slow here. You need to be understanding. I want to be gentle. And whenever you fail, it's okay. It's not your job to produce patience in your life. That's God's job. You keep working at it. And what I believe will happen is that years from now, whenever you look back on your life, you'll be able to look back and say, I was so quick to be angry there. I was... I struggle to be understanding with this, this person in my life. Man, I was always harsh when it came to this person. But now, if I look at where God has brought me, I stuck with it. I continued to work at it. I kept trying. That this fruit of patience is continuing to be built up more in my life. And that's the hope. Because you are not supposed to produce Patience, you're supposed to persevere. The second thing, I think we struggle with patience because we have a, a small fear, and that's this. If we ask God for patience, that he's going to bring hardship into our life. So the joke goes like this. Pray for anything except patience. It's dangerous, and God will give you what you ask for. Right? I mean... I've said that joke, you probably said that joke, you've laughed at that joke, I was hoping that you would laugh a little bit more at that joke. <laughs> but we do, we have this, this belief that if I ask for patience, God is just going to give me more hardship, more opportunities to be patient, and it's just going to be more difficult. I don't want to step into that. 
We have a misunderstanding about who our Father in Heaven is whenever we think that way. There's one Christian author that wrote out a prayer and I found it so helpful for me. It says this, Heavenly Father, I'm not sure who first warned about asking you for patience out of fear you create difficult circumstances that require patience. That's not only silly, it mis misrepresents your fatherly heart in graceful ways. I'm asking you for patience because I have plenty of contexts, situations, relationships that showcase my need of this fruit of your spirit. You don't have to fear about asking your father who is in heaven for patience because he's going to bring these trials and difficulties into your life. He's not this little kid that's staying over an anthill with a spyglass looking to burn every ant that comes out. That's not who your God is. The Bible tells us that our Father is like a good dad in this world that loves to give, give, give good gifts. If a Father in this world loves to give good gifts, how much greater is our Father who is in heaven and his joy and delight in that God's going to bring all these difficult circumstances into your life. Listen, I'm not saying that there's not going to be difficult circumstances or different seasons of life. You live in a broken world with broken people. They're going to happen. The thing is, you already have places and moments in your life that you have to have patience here and now. You can't not ask for it. Good and trusting God is somebody that we can approach and ask for patience. He will give it. And he will help you in those moments when you need it. So listen. Keep working at it. Keep trying. The goal isn't perfection, it's perseverance. And as you keep working at it, it's going to bring it to fruition in your life. Don't cripple with fear and asking God for patience. Step into it. Be emboldened. Be specific. Let them know where you need patience, whether it be in your, your home or your workplace, on your commute to and from the workplace. I hate the water sin in 64. It is awful, those exits on my commute. I need God's patience in those moments. Step into it. He's a good God who loves you. Listen, the patience God produces in us is rooted in the patience that Jesus first showed us. His patience is slow. His patience is understanding. His patience is gentle. May we shadow the patience Jesus has modeled for us.